What a wonderful, sure, I'm very loud, what a wonderful um, occasion for us to be able to get together. I, I love it when we get together on Easter, um, on Christmas morning, for me it's one of my favorite times, but it's kind of like Easter is the, be- I mean, Christmas, Christmas is the beginning of that journey of salvation that Christ went on our behalf, but today, Easter Sunday, is the culmination, it's the completion of everything that he spoke about. It was kind of like if you were watching the story for the first time and and you, you, the marvel of the king being born as this baby, and you, 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 like you're full of joy at it, but then you wonder along the way, how is this going to turn out? And he's telling you what's going to happen, but you still wonder what will happen in the end. Will the enemy win in the end? If you've watched Narnia, you kind of get that same sensation as well. But he does rise from the dead. After taking our sin upon himself on the cross, he does rise from the dead. And the resurrection is one of the most joyous things that we as a, a, a body of believers can gather together to enjoy and celebrate because there are such profound implications for us. It's also the area that Christianity, so I'm to move this very tall microphone out the way, yeah? Oh, there we go. Thanks, Sid. Um, it's also the area that can be attacked. And Christianity has often faced attack from various forms. I, I saw this um, billboard go up um, in the States a while ago, and it was uh, put up by the Atheist Association. I don't know if you can read it. It's a little girl there with her pen and paper looking pretty wicked, going, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. And uh, whether the attacks that come on Christianity are trivial like that, I think who cares about a billboard that goes up from the Atheist Association, or whether they are um, more um, serious... Christianity is, seems to be um, actually something that invites the criticism. Christianity is the religion that says, come and bring your questions, bring your doubts, bring the evidence you have and put it on the table and let's talk about it. It's one of the reasons why Peter writes and he says in uh, chapter 3 and verse 15, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I can remember having a, a friend of mine at, at the, where I used to work um, he was from another religion, more common to this area than to our area. And uh, he, I used to say, often want to um, engage him in conversations about God and Jesus and try to get him to read the book of Romans. And he said to me, why do we not talk about all that stuff? He didn't want to have any discussion about what was happening behind the scenes. Let's just talk about the glory of God. And uh, we don't have to ever fear kind of making those conversations or, bring, or anybody bringing any challenge to us. Because if God is real then he will withstand any test. If the word of God really is his revelation to us, it can withstand any sort of scrutiny. And so there's a, there's a confidence we have in our faith. But throughout the history of our faith, there have been people, critics, of the, that have tried to undermine it, that have tried to debunk it, and, uh, and trying to, they've tried to disprove the claims of Christianity and thereby debunk our faith. So many of those that have tried that, that have given a sincere effort to look at the evidence and find the cracks in our faith, have actually ended up along the way turning from being the enemies of Christ to followers of Christ. And some of the names of some of those recent men, I'll mention them, you might know some of these because they're authors as well. Lee Strobel, Josh McDowell, Albert Roper, Frank Morrison. What do these four have in common? Well, three of the four were lawyers and or journalists, which seem to be um, indicative of an inquisitive mind that seeks evidence. Hey, Hannah. And... um, But more than that, all of them believed that everything about Christianity hinged on the actual and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And so they all set out on a journey to disprove the resurrection and believe that way they'd be able to undo um, the Christian faith. I mentioned already that along the way, every single one of them, instead of finding um, a lack of evidence, found compelling evidence in favor of the resurrection. One of them, um, Alfred Roper, wrote this in his book. He said, I started this investigation asking, can any intelligent person accept the resurrection story? Seems like a reasonable question to ask, okay? But after examining the evidence at length, I came away asking a different question. Can any intelligent person deny the weight of this evidence? And each of these men, they documented their journey from skeptic to believer and the trail of evidence that they came across in a book. The Case for Easter was written by Strobel. The Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. I don't know if you've ever read that book. It's fat. Did Jesus Rise from the Dead by Roper and Who Moved the Stone by Morrison. And maybe you're sitting here today and you, you, uh, or maybe you're listening online and some of the claims that are made about the resurrection that somebody should die and actually be dead and then be raised to life again, to never die again. We're not talking about Lazarus that was raised from the dead only to die again after that or the, the widow's son who Jesus raised from the dead as well only for him later to die. We've heard stories about people that are clinically dead that somehow have been brought back to life again. We're not talking about that. That's resuscitation. We're talking about resurrection. We're talking about Jesus coming back to life to never, ever die again. And so if you have any questions about those, I can highly recommend any of these books and these authors um, and uh, get online and grab one of those and read it through. I can also recommend another author by the name of Paul of Tarsus. You see, these men I've mentioned come from a very long line of enemies turned evangelists that started with Paul um, that I mentioned above. Paul, who was known at the time as Saul, hated Christianity. He, uh, he didn't bother with sticking up billboards. He thought they was too soft. And uh, what Saul did was he actually went and rounded up Christians. He went and found them, threw them into prison, and uh, many of them were actually put to death as a result of that. He saw Christianity as a stain and an, um, a blasphemy against the God of Judaism that had to be removed. In a short um, biographical account that Luke, Dr. Luke gives in the book of Acts, he, he talks about the fact that um, Saul was actually on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus with a letter from the authorities that gave him permission to go find any of these Christ followers wherever, wherever he could, and to actually take them and get them thrown into prison and to be dealt with appropriately. It was on that road that he had an encounter with, uh, with Jesus and found out the truth about the resurrection. Of course, he had heard the stories. He had arrested the people. You can imagine, as he said, why have you turned your back on, on the only God, Yahweh? Why would you do this? And then some of those would have said, but, but Jesus has resurrected from the dead. I've seen him. I've seen him alive. And Paul would have said, lies, 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 terrible lies like this. And he would have just, that's what he believed it was. Until on that road to Damascus, he's knocked off his horse, his donkey, whatever he was on. And he sees the resurrected Christ before him. And so it became not a theory, not somebody's idea, but an actual reality to Saul. You know, Paul's letters in the, in the scripture are not just theology. If by theology we mean a kind of, I don't know, spiritual ideology or a spiritual philosophy, just like a list of ideas. There's truths that are communicated in that way. But actually, when you look at Paul's letters, they are the lived experience of a man who came to realize that Jesus was alive and the spiritual outworking of the implications of that realization. For Paul, 
the resurrection of Jesus was a historical fact that was as real as anything around him. He speaks in one of his letters to the church in Corinth about the fact that there was one moment when there were 500 gathered together that saw together the resurrected Christ. And he was trying to make the point, I think, that like one man might have, have an hallucination or, you know, you might get two or three people together that, are, that like we really want to believe is alive. But 500 together, and Paul says many of them are still alive. So if you don't believe me, go and see them. Go find them. Go and ask the questions. It's that important. Why is the resurrection one of the most important, if not the most important claim um, of the Christian faith? Why was it that when the resurrection was settled in Paul's heart, that changed everything for him? It turned him around completely from an enemy of Christ to a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think it's for three reasons. The resurrection is the most potent proof that Jesus is God. That that man Jesus that lived 2,000 years ago in Israel was not just a man, but he was God himself. That Jesus' sacrifice, number two, was sufficient. That what he did on the cross was sufficient. It paid the price that needed to be paid so that we can trust in the finished work of Jesus. And lastly, it is the most potent proof that our faith, our faith is precious beyond measure. If you were to go back to more than six months before the crucifixion actually took place, it's uh, an account that's recorded in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is um, spending some time with his disciples, and he asks them this question, quite a probing question, who do you say I am? It's a good question, hey? It's kind of like, yo, this is what the Bible says. This is what my mom and dad said. This is what my culture tells me. But Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter, inspired by the Spirit, actually God the Father, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is, that's huge. Because what he's saying is that Jesus, you are God. And Jesus, he doesn't, doesn't deny it. He, he, he takes it. This is the very reason why Paul then Saul was going from house to house to find the Christians because it was such a, a crazy claim to make that God had come in the flesh, that God was one and yet three persons, and that Jesus is God. The author of that gospel, Matthew, goes on to say in verse 21, he says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, Jesus, following the footsteps of um, some of the prophets that had come before him, predicted his own death and his resurrection. This Jesus who would claimed to have been with the Father, actually have come from the Father, this Jesus who said, I only do what I see the Father doing, makes this, makes this claim. He, he says it. The disciples are there to record it. It's in our Bibles in black and white, or if you've got one of those words of Jesus in red, then it's in red and white in your Bible. Jesus stakes a claim. He says that I, I am going to die, but in three days I'll be raised up again. How absurd would his claims have been, not just about his resurrection, but therefore everything if his story had ended in a grave. They would have proven that he was utterly false. William Barclay says it emphatically when he says, either Christ rose again from the dead, or his claims are a series of blasphemous arrogances and his character irredeemably stained. Not only is his prediction fulfilled, and that's a hard prediction for you to fill on your own. If fulfill on your own, you say, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. But he alone has ever been bodily raised from the dead, never to die again. He is the first fruits, Paul writes somewhere, of the resurrection. He was the only one. 
And I wonder if Paul was thinking about that encounter on the road to Damascus when he saw Christ, um, that he had that in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. This is what he says. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Somebody once said, this is the most definitive declaration. This is my beloved son when God raised him from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, Luke writing records the preach of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he says this, God raised Jesus from the dead. And we are all witnesses of this. Now he's exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. John MacArthur puts it like this. The resurrection of Christ from the dead was a monumental declaration of the sonship of Christ. God declared him as deity in resurrection. God raised him from the dead as an affirmation that he was the second member of the Trinity. The second thing that it teaches us is that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It was enough. Going back to Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus predicts his coming death and his torture and his resurrection, Peter responds like this. He says, heaven forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you. And we know this is that famous moment where he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And uh, we can, I think we would all can relate to what Peter's saying there. I mean, they loved Jesus. They revered Jesus. They understood that he was the Messiah. And now he's saying that I'm going to be tortured and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. I think every one of us would have recoiled at that idea and maybe responded in the same way. But it amazes me that Peter doesn't call a time out at this moment. Because Jesus says, after he tells him that he's going to die, on the third day I will be raised again. Like, like I'd be going, whoa, whoa, hold on, Jesus. Just can we pause there for a second? What do you, on, what? What does that even mean? What do you mean on the third day you're going to be raised again? What, 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 explain that to me. Because if he could have got that, maybe he could have wrapped his head around the rest of it. And it's not surprising because the disciples got so little of what Jesus taught before he actually went to the cross. But after this Passover, after Jesus was crucified on Friday, they, it, it sank in. They figured out what happened. Once he was raised from there, they figured out he had to die. He must die because he was, as John the Baptist had called out when Jesus had gone past, the Lamb of God. He was the one that from all time had been prepared to be sacrificed on the altar because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But what would happen, they understood that, but what would happen if he died on the cross and died as a substitute for our sins but was never resurrected? Well, because of point one, it would prove, number one, that he's not God. It would prove that he was just a man, a good man, an extraordinary man even. Probably one of the best men that any man, person has ever come across, but he was just a man. And therefore, his death in our place would be su sufficient, maybe, if he were a perfect man, to pay for one life, but insufficient to atone for all of our sins. His death could only pay for all of us if he was God himself. And so the resurrection proves that Jesus is God, but also that the sacrifice was enough to satisfy God's justice. And we see this in one of Paul's um, letters to the Corinthian church again in chapter 15. He says this. It's a crazy scripture. 
He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we have all people, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Or to turn it around in a hut and paraphrase. Am I right? A hut and paraphrase Bible. I'll only have a three verses, but this would be it. If the resurrection of Christ really took place, your faith is precious beyond measure, and you are no longer in your sin. Then those who have fallen asleep have not perished. If in Christ we have hope for a life to come, we are of all people the most to be envied. Christ has risen. And when He rose from the grave, He he proved that he had completed salvation. What needed to be done, had done. He had paid the price. He had conquered the enemy, which is sin. He had destroyed its executor, which is death. He had, and that when he was set free, and God lifted him up and put him at his right hand and exalted him to show that he accepted his death. And that leads us to the third point, that the resurrection proves that our faith, that which we have, is precious beyond measure, the most precious thing you have. See, the resurrection was a watershed. It changed the meaning of what it meant to be alive. We actually sang about it to, to, tonight when we, were, when we were worshiping God. Life would no longer be measured by a pulse. Like, okay, yeah, you're alive because you've got a pulse. Do you know what I mean? In the same way that somebody that's in a coma is alive, they've got a pulse. They, they're doing some of the things that living people do. They, they're breathing. They're even eating. Their nails are growing. Their muscles need to be exercised. But none of us would say, that's living. We, we, would, we would say, living's relationships and dreams and desires and challenges. and those, That's what it means to be living. And now Christ, having been resurrected, shows us actually even this that we think is living is not living. Just being in relationships and just having dreams and just being able to overcome challenges and breathe and eat and enjoy this. This is Nothing compared to the life that God has promised to us, the resurrection life. One of the fiercest critics of Christ, turned into a follower, writes again in Romans chapter 8. He says, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Just listen to creation around us, groaning for its redemption. And we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. Our, our salvation is this, this guarantee of what we still have to come. Whatever sacrifices are made in this life, whatever pain we have to go to, however short this life may seem or be for us, whatever suffering we have to endure, Jesus' resurrection is a promise that we too will be resurrected, that we too will receive a resurrection body, and that we will spend an eternity with Him. And it's kind of like we've got to holler that from the rooftops. We've got to remind ourselves about the gospel again and again. Of course, the whole phenomenon of the resurrection is supernatural, isn't it? This is not something natural we're talking about. This is not something that can be tested in a laboratory, do empirical studies on. And so coming to the place of putting your faith in Christ because of 
the resurrection is actually a, a, an, an intersection, a weaving together of evidence and of faith. I told you guys about my jumping off the bridge that time with a rope tied to my legs. I had, I had all the evidence in my mind. I knew it was going to work. I knew it wouldn't break. I was, I was 100% confident. I would have thrown my children overboard tied to this thing. <laughs> or my wife. <laughs> but I still had to step off. And all the evidence in the world is not sufficient for you to step out. Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, heard from the other disciples that Jesus had shown up. And uh, they, they, were, they were amazed because the risen Lord had been in the midst of them. What, what, what the, the woman had said had happened, it actually happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. And Thomas was a skeptic and he said, I won't believe until I put my fingers in the holes in his hand or my, or my hand in the wound in his side, you know. And we've got to be careful what we say because Jesus hears it all. And the very, I think it's the next day, Jesus turns up to Thomas and says to him, Thomas, come here. Put your finger in my wound. Put your hand in my side. Come see that it is me. And Thomas falls to the floor and he says, my Lord and my God, and he worships him. And when we come to faith in Christ, it actually starts with a step of believing. Jesus' response to Thomas was, blessed of those who believe without seeing without having seen the risen Lord, without having met him on the road like Paul did in Damascus, we believe even though we haven't seen with our natural eyes that he is resurrected and, and uh, we, uh, we worship him as our Lord and our God. Why don't the worship team come up, please? The first step to seeing is to come in faith, believe in the testimony of Scripture and the Holy Spirit that is speaking into your heart right now. I don't know the spiritual condition of every single person that is sitting here today. And so I certainly don't know the spiritual condition of everybody that's watching online. And so I want to give an opportunity as we land this meeting, this wonderful, glorious meeting this morning, for others to come into this place to receive this faith that is more precious than anything. We sang it tonight. I count it all but loss. As we quote the words of Paul again, everything else. I count as loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, my Lord. Would you close your eyes, please? We're not Christians because we attend church. We're not Christians because our parents or our family were Christian. Christian because we come from a so-called Christian nation. We're not Christian because we even know that Jesus is real. We're Christians because we believe that Jesus is God. That He took on human form. That He lived a sinless life. That He died in our place upon that cross. That He took our sin and bore the punishment our sin deserved. died in our place and then three days later was raised from the dead that he ascended to the Father and is seated at his right hand and that one day he will return wrapping up all of time and that we who have trusted in him in this life and believed in that finished work 
is the only basis for our forgiveness and forgiveness is the only basis for our reconciliation. We'll be united with Him for all eternity. Those that hold to that faith, that have put their trust in God because the Holy Spirit has drawn them to Him, those will share in that eternal life. Those are saved. And if you have not done that, then this evening I want to give you the chance to put your trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If that's you, won't you? If you're here in the auditorium this evening, won't you just raise your hands as eyes are closed so I can pray with you. If there's anybody here that needs to make that commitment. And if there's anyone online, and as you're listening to me preach His words either live now or maybe from the podcast, I want you to pray with me to receive eternal life today through Jesus Christ. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that this perfect man, both God and man, lived for the sole purpose walking to the cross and I know it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross but it was my sin and I come before you today Father in repentance as I call out to Jesus Christ to my Lord and Savior I ask you to forgive me of my sin and as you forgive me to receive me now as your son or your daughter from this moment time. I invite you to be the master of my life, to lead me and guide me every day. And I recognize you as the only Savior. I will depend upon nothing else, not upon my good works, not upon my associations, not upon my sacrifices, not upon my rationalizing, but only upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and Him alone I place my trust tonight and in his name I pray Amen